So today we've been uh, practicing mindfulness and loving kindness all day long. We've been engaged in a practice that looks quite similar to what's been practiced for thousands of years in centers, countries inspired by the teachings and practices of the Buddha, and perhaps not so different in their essence from what we find in a number of other traditions as well. The cultivation of a clarity of mind and increasingly, although not in a linear way, increasingly an open heart. And I want to talk this evening, explore this evening the ways that these resources of mindfulness and loving kindness and the wisdom teachings, the resources that we get from the teachings and practices of the Buddha provide a kind of foundation for the work that we're exploring in this retreat of transforming distressing states of mind and body and heart for ourselves and the world. And perhaps your experience during the day has been one of ups and downs. I know that many people came to the retreat having uh, worked hard to get here. A number of people instantly went to sleep. Some of you may have experienced sleep on your cushion and your body may have been saying, I've been working so hard. And this is the only day of mindfulness practice without other exercises. I just want to sleep or something like that. Or perhaps some of you not quite like that. But how many people experience some ups and downs today? How many people experience a little more, uh, at least moments of distress during the day? So you might ask the question, are we transforming distressing states of mind, heart, and body or creating more of them? Uh, and I'll, I'll actually answer that a little bit later. The, <laughs> that question is, the, the, que- the, the answer, as, as we often say, is yes. And we're actually going through at times some distress in order to, in the long run, transform distress. So our focus on this retreat are finding tools and perspectives that help us transform distress distressing states uh, related to ourselves, related to our society, and to understand more deeply the very nature of transformation. And I think the much of the guiding understanding for the retreat comes from a sense that transformation has these two broad uh, movements or these two broad modes. And one of them is indeed going into our difficult states. It's going into places where there's suffering, sometimes uh, 
not intentionally, sometimes just because it's there, going into territory that's opened up by what we might call our wounds, our difficult places. And we definitely meet suffering, we address it, we work with it. And definitely a part of transformative practice follows that particular mode of being about working with what's difficult, challenging. And there's also a second mode, which I have found in my own practice. I think this is true of really all kinds of transformation, which is that we also strengthen what we might call our awakened qualities. We strengthen our beautiful qualities. We develop further, we cultivate qualities of mindfulness or loving kindness or the open heart. And the transformation process requires both. And often we will need to develop the wonderful, beautiful qualities further in order to be more able, skillfully, to open up to more suffering or even to open up to the suffering that's there. And I think it's helpful to think of these twin tracks and ultimately they're quite interconnected, but these twin tracks of transformation. And that in our own practice, at times, we may experience more of one or the other. I know in my experience of retreats, particularly in the first years of my practice, it seemed like some retreats were just wonderful, blissful, opened up to wonderful insights, and others of them were different. <laughs> and others of them were more about fear. You know, I, I've had retreats where just a certain difficult state was a pervasive theme. So one of my early retreats, I was fearful a lot of the retreat and got to study that. And it sometimes felt like there was an alternation between the two over time. Some retreats more difficult, you know, and of course it's not just retreats, it's phases of life at times. And some retreats were more about stabilizing, about uh, seemed to be to integrate some learning. And it wasn't like this was planned, but it's something like what, what happened, that there are these rhythms of, of practice. And of course I learned more with the difficult ones. <laughs> It's the kind of learning that we often say, save me from any future such learning, <laughs> you know, after, after the fact. Or we, we tell stories, oh yes, I learned so much, but at the time it was really hard or even um, at times miserable um, or, or challenging. So there are, these two, there are these twin tracks of transformation. And I think it's helpful to see that this is true individually. And it's also, I think, true... Uh, when we're engaged in transformation of communities or even of the whole society. And it's helpful to see that. And I think a lot of transformative movements don't always hold both approaches. So we may think of social movements and they may focus more on the protest, on saying, hey, let's transform this suffering, it's awful. And they won't say so much about where they want to go or what the good society is, you know. And that can be a weakness if one just focuses on one dimension, which is, which is quite common. You know, but we think, we may think of 
some of the great leaders of social movements and there always was their eye on where they were going and sometimes it was well worked out. So Gandhi, in addition to working for the independence of India, had what he called a constructive program, often not studied very much, in which he really laid out what he thought was the basis for a transformed society or King would talk about the beloved society. And in, in a sense, what the secret is, is that the, it's actually that the beautiful states or the awake qualities actually are what help us to transform and they're there all the way. It's the way the great activist A.J. Musti said, there is no way to peace, peace is the way. And it's actually through our development in mindfulness and loving kindness that we actually can be with what's difficult and can actually anticipate these awake qualities because they're actually what are necessary to be with the difficult states. But tonight I want to especially help us to have a sense of this grounding in traditional practice, in the practice of mindfulness, the practice of loving kindness, the cultivation of wisdom, and really to, in a way, point more directly to these as foundational resources for our work of transformation and really identify, identify what they are. So when we look to the teachings of the Buddha and ask the question, what do those teachings have to do with the notion of transforming distressful states of body, mind, and heart? Well, we might say that that's all that the focus is about. <laughs> that the focus is on suffering and the transformation of suffering. And it's quite explicit in those teachings. The Buddha says, I teach only the sure heart's release from suffering. And so for, for us, that may be very liberative to hear that there is this focus of suffering. I remember for myself, actually, when I first heard the teachings, I wasn't interested in the teachings of suffering. I wanted to hear about great, wonderful insights and bliss. Suffering, that's for other people. I'm not suffering. I was young, quite young, and hadn't really opened to my own suffering so much. And doing further retreats, I learned more about suffering. You know, it kind of opened up. But at first, I wasn't so interested. I wanted to know about the wonder and the mystery and the beauty and the insight and the, the knowledge and the understanding of the nature of the mind and so forth. That was what was interesting to me. And so in the teachings of the Buddha, the teachings that are probably most pronounced are the teachings of suffering and the roots of suffering. There are plenty of teachings about developing what we might call awakened qualities, of developing mindfulness or loving kindness or um, equanimity or tranquility of mind and so forth. And those teachings are there, but they're definitely, I would say, a little bit more in the background. The center of the focus is on transforming suffering and getting to the roots of suffering. And that's expressed most fully in what's perhaps the core teaching of the Buddha, 
which is the teaching of the four truths, the four so-called four noble or four ennobling truths that probably most of us are quite, are quite familiar with. Often when we look to say, what does it mean to be wise? Or what does it mean to have understanding? In the Buddhist tradition, it often is unpacked through clarifying the four truths. And those four truths are the truth that there is suffering, the truth of the origin of suffering and what we can call a kind of compulsive craving or grasping or pushing away. The third truth is the possibility of peace, the possibility of transforming suffering. And the fourth truth is the practical way to transform suffering very direct teaching. It's actually modeled after the model f that was used for the physician in ancient India. Very simple model, very commonsensical. What's the problem? What's the cause of the problem? What's the solution? And how do we get there? Very, very simple. Commonsensical in a way. Number of friends in in Asia have often taken that model and applied it to all sorts of issues, just using that very, very simple model. The Buddha taught this teaching of the four truths in, in his very first teaching after he was awakened. And you may remember the, uh, his story that after his night of awakening, he was unsure whether to teach. He said, it's so simple, no one will be interested. It's just about letting go of all the places we're attached. Too simple. People want profound metaphysical doctrines that require years of study. Why would they want something simple and practical? I'll just keep my own awakening to myself, he said. And so he did for, for quite a while, for a number of days. And it's sad, and this is more the mythology, that the king of the gods, Brahma, came down and talked to him and said, there are some with but little dust over their eyes. They will understand. And so he said, okay, I'll teach. <laughs> there wasn't much discussion. <laughs> and so I don't know if we are those with but little dust on over the eyes um, or whether that's a prerequisite. You know, we do eye tests for dust when people who come to Spirit Rock, but we'll, we'll assume that we, we, we have some, uh, what? Um, some places in the dust part over our eyes where there's some breaks or room or not as much dust. So the Buddha said, okay, I'll teach and I'll, I'll, I'll do that. And, and, in his very first teaching, he taught this model of the four truths. And the, the text is, call, is called Setting in Motion the Wheel of the Dharma. It's taken to be right at the center of the teachings of liberation. And so the first truth is about suffering. What does that mean? What, is, what, what, what does he mean by suffering? And there is a version, really, of the four truths, which is one of my favorite 
short expressions of this teaching, which is called the teachings of the teaching of the two arrows, which I think really gets at how we might understand suffering. Because I think it's really necessary to make a kind of distinction between what we might call pain and what we might call suffering. And pain is the presence of the unpleasant, which is a given in our lives. We all, we all have a certain amount of that. And suffering, I think on this account, which I'll give in a moment, is the reaction really to anything which is present, resistance, a kind of fighting with what's there, which results in a kind, can result in contraction of body and mind. And so the presence of unpleasant physical or mental or emotional experiences doesn't necessarily mean that we will suffer. In fact, the Buddha himself actually um, had a bad back. And I think also at times when he was older, had headaches. And sometimes he would come to the time for the Dharma talk and he says, my back is killing me. Ananda, can you give the talk? I don't know if he said my back is killing me, but he, in a way, there were unpleasant sensations, but we presume he wasn't suffering because of that. So a lot of the teaching is about how to make that distinction. So this very powerful teaching called the teaching of the two arrows really is, is one way that this distinction is unpacked. And the Buddha was asked, everyone has unpleasant experiences. And we could say that we all have some unpleasant experiences. Having a body makes us vulnerable to physical pain. Having a heart makes us emotionally vulnerable. We're sometimes treated unfairly. We're sometimes treated meanly. We all have to face loss. We all have to face the prospect of death. There's a certain amount of what we could call unpleasant, which is a given in our experience. And so the Buddha was asked, everyone has some unpleasant experience. What distinguishes a non-practitioner from a practitioner? Is there any difference? And he said, yes. He said, someone who doesn't practice experiences the unpleasant. He said, this is as if that person was shot by an arrow. And he said, that's the first arrow. And he said that a non-practitioner will tend, because of the first arrow, to shoot a second arrow. We might say either at oneself or at another. What does that mean? So we may have unpleasant physical sensations. And we may, because of those sensations, contract around the sensations, react. Physically contract, react, and it actually causes more pain. Some doctors I've spoken with say that as much as 80% of what patients experience as pain is not the original stimulus, but it's the reactions to the stimulus. That's the second arrow. And it's also fairly obvious what that might mean, let's say, with emotional pain. 
we have something difficult happen to us. We may have, we may be sad or angry and we may brood about it for hours or weeks or years, right? It may in a way be the reaction which is actually at the root of most of our suffering. We may have something, someone do something mean to us, we think, and we may react back by doing or saying something mean to that person. That's the second arrow. And we can see, I think, that a great deal of the conflict in our world comes from people shooting second arrows because there's pain. You did pain to me, I will do pain to you. We will continue in these cycles. So a great deal of what we can understand is the roots of conflict, the roots of violence, I think follows the very same logic. It's a second arrow phenomenon. A great deal of war and, and chronic conflict is about people continually shooting the second arrow at each other. And so the Buddha was asked, what does a practitioner do? And his answer was, a practitioner, after being shot by the first arrow, learns not to shoot the second arrow. One of the secrets, as it were, of transforming distressing states. Not easy. Right? That would mean when there's difficult physical sensation, and we're sitting on the cushion, we can learn to be with it and study our reactions and contractions. And so it's no accident that one of the great applications of meditation has been in the medical area. Work like that of John Kabat-Zinn and others at the University of Massachusetts Medical School teaching people not to do those reactions and contractions, not to increase, we might say, the suffering. To learn to be with what's given, not so easy, but how not to shoot the second arrow or how not to shoot the second arrow with our friends or our partners or with ourselves, because we can also blame ourselves, right? Something bad happens to me, I shoot the second arrow at myself. Sometimes uh, it often seems like when something difficult or, or um, unpleasant or distressing happens to ourselves, we will blame ourselves as if that would do good. Because when we shoot the second arrow, some part of us has the belief this will solve things, right? People who are engaged in wars and fighting these conflicts and shooting second arrows somehow think this will help. But it keeps us in this continual cycle of reaction. And so the Buddha said, we can learn not to shoot the second arrow. And we can interpret a lot of the teachings and practices that we do as learning to be with what's difficult or unpleasant without shooting the second arrow. So we can be with difficult sensations in the body. Again, uh, when we're practicing or when we're um, in everyday life, and we can, we can study, especially in meditation, we can study to what extent do I, do I react when there's something unpleasant there? Can I just be with it? Can I be with difficult emotions? 
without reacting, without telling stories, without going off in all sorts of directions. And so the teaching really, to me, is a wonderful, clear way to unpack really the essence of the first two truths. It's really to say that first arrow we could call pain. It's the arrow of pain. And the second arrow is the arrow of suffering. We don't get rid of pain, but it is possible to transform and end suffering. I think that's the meaning of what the Buddha was talking about when he says that we can go beyond suffering. It doesn't mean we go beyond the unpleasant, but it means that we can really work on our tendencies, our habits of reacting. We can study them and transform them. It's a big part of what we'll be exploring in this week. What it really means is that the core of our practice is seeing our habits and tendencies around suffering, studying them, and and eventually transforming them. Studying our habits that may be about when pain comes, I just react, I want to get rid of it. When something unpleasant happens, I just want to get rid of it. These practices we do help us to see the habitual nature of many of our reactions and develop some other responses. And we study them. What we do really in meditation is we study these manifesting in relatively small ways. We basically, our practice is we work with the small stuff in training for working with bigger stuff. We work with small pains. We study the relation between pain and suffering in my knee pain, which lasts for 20 minutes, and when I get up, it's nothing. It's gone. And I study how I relate to that, or I study how I relate to my, um, my anger and what I do with that, and whether I go into blaming myself or others or both. And we study that. We study, especially, we get to study it in relatively... Uh, small manifestations. And so partly what we do when we meditate, when we engage in a spiritual path, is in a way true. We do open ourselves up to somewhat more suffering. It's true. No way around it. If anyone is disappointed by that or wants to leave, (laughs) we may... We may enter into more suffering. Well, you knew that. You were, who would sign up for a retreat called Transforming Distressing States without knowing that in some way? <laughs> so when I, I, I'd like to hear at some point what you told your friends and your family about what you were going to be doing on this retreat. What did you think? Transforming Distressing States, does that mean we're going to just go into more distressing states. Well, the truth is that we have to enter to some extent into these difficult states. And again, we can do it in these smaller ways where I'm with my knee pain or I'm with my anger for five minutes or 10 minutes and I just see my habitual reactions. So we do take on some more suffering in the interest of transforming suffering. It's like a conversation that Jack Kornfield had with his teacher in Thailand, Achen Cha. Jack 
was a new monk in Thailand. This would have been in the uh, late 60s. He was, had been working in the Peace Corps. He was really interested in these great spiritual experiences. He had had some um, psychedelic background. Doesn't talk about that so much, but it's there some. And he went to talk to his teacher, and, and his teacher went right up to him and said, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. And he said, what? Suffering? I came here for bliss and understanding and wisdom. I'm paraphrasing. I don't know if he exactly said that. But he, he said, uh, he was confused. And then his teacher, Achan Chah, said, there are two kinds of suffering. There is the suffering that leads to further suffering. And there is suffering that we take on that leads to the end of suffering. And that's, uh, that second journey is, I think, what we're exploring uh, this week. So the third and fourth truths are the truths that it's possible to transform suffering. That some kind of peace and deep peace and understanding, some sense of ourselves as not being based on tendencies to create suffering. Not being based on tendencies to create suffering by our resistance, by our reactions, by our compulsive pushing away or grabbing hold, which the, uh, in the teachings it said this is, these are the roots of suffering. Some kind of compulsive aversion pushing away or some kind of compulsive greed and wanting that's half conscious or some kind of basic ignorance and delusion that is possible to work through those and come to a kind of deep peace and deep presence without those qualities. And I think we all have had periods, I, am, I, I certainly believe this, in which we have lived without the usual roots of suffering in which we have felt a kind of presence or a kind of joy or a kind of happiness or a kind of peace. It's really the human birthright. And what our practice does is we cultivate that further, further and further, and we keep stabilizing it more and more. It's not that we're creating it. It actually is something that's present in our very being. We don't have to create it this quality of peace. I want to read you a, a poem by um, uh, the poet Rilke, which is about this quality of peace. This is his poem called Buddha in Glory. And have you translated this one? No. Joanna is a master Rilke translator, as some of you may know. I had some other, I had one of her translations ready for tonight, but I don't know if it's going to happen. Uh, but this is, this is Rilke on the essence of that quality of peace. It's really the third truth. It's called Buddha in glory. Center of all centers, core of cores, almond self-enclosed and growing sweet. All this universe to the furthest stars and beyond them is your flesh, your fruit. Now you feel how nothing clings to you. 
your vast shell reaches into endless space, and there the rich, thick fluids rise and flow, illuminated in your infinite peace. A billion stars go spinning through the night, blazing high above your head, but in you is the presence that will be when all the stars are dead. And that's maybe a very um, expanded sense of that quality of peace, but that peace is also very ordinary. It's the peace just of contentment in a moment, of being present with a flower or a tree or a beloved, or eating our meals and being mindful. There's a quality of peace, really, in that, in that sense of mindfulness. And the fourth truth, as most of you know, is the Eightfold Path. It's the practical way to bring about that transformation. And so we have the division into training in wisdom. We train in understanding, particularly of the fourth truth. We train in developing clear priorities and clear aspirations for what we want to do with our lives. Uh, the first two of the Eightfold Path, the the middle three are usually connected with a sense of integrity or ethics. They have to do with uh, right speech, it's, it's sometimes called, or, or living ethically, uh, living with right livelihood. And the last has to do with the development of more meditative abilities, developing in what could be called wise effort and concentration and mindfulness. And so I thought I'd read you, let's see if I have this here, a summary of the Four Noble Truths, written by one of my students um, uh, named Chuck Squire. And this is called The Four Noble Truths. And this is, um, he calls, he wrote a whole series of poems about all the different lists, the three this, the four this, the Brahma Vihara, the four foundations of mindfulness. And this is, he called it the list of lists doggerel. And this is The Four Noble Truths. You can rub it on your skin, you can pour it in a glass, you can smoke it in a water hookah. Every time, everything you try, no matter what, where or why, you can't escape that dukkha. <laughs> dukkha, dukkha is the word for suffering. Okay. Dukkha is the second arrow. I'll read that again. You can rub it on your skin, you can pour it in a glass, you can smoke it in a water hookah. Everything you try, no matter where or why, you can't escape that dukkha. When you see it coming, know it has an origin. I'm really not mad or raving. The cause of all of this unsatisfactoriness is really nothing more than craving. So do first things first and quell this endless thirst. There really is a way at last. If you want to find some freedom from all your age-old demons, follow the Eightfold Path. <laughs> Maybe I'll post that. <laughs> so... Uh, Thank you, thank you, Chuck. And another, let's see, another wonderful expression of this core insight, which is really this core insight for us about how to work with what's difficult, with distressing states, is we're developing the resources, the capacity, the understanding to learn when there's something difficult and we have the right amount of resources and balance to enter into what's difficult rather than to run away from it this core 
teaching which goes against our conditioning, right? Which goes against our conditioning. Our conditioning is what do we do with the unpleasant? Push it away, get rid of it. What do we do with the pleasant? Grab hold of it and so forth. So there's this, we might say, counter-conditional um, teaching, really, that goes against our conditioning. A beautiful way of expressing it is in a poem by Rumi called The Question. This is from part of that poem. And it's really about the way that, that I certainly have found in my experience and, and we can study is that when we actually enter into our suffering and choose to face it and choose to be with it, in the long run, there's much less suffering. Do you know that truth? That there's so much suffering to keep our habits going, except that we don't feel it. It's kind of half-conscious. And that it's actually less suffering in the long run when we actually face something. It doesn't mean face everything right now. But in our own time, if we're in that direction, there's actually less long-term suffering. I think that's true for individuals. I think that's true for societies. When societies don't face their pain and their suffering, it builds things up and people act half-consciously, unconsciously. You know, whether it's facing ecological difficulties or racism or whatever, we don't want to face these things. And it keeps the problems happening. That is actually a relief to be able to face what's difficult. This is the way that Rumi said it. God's presence is there in front of me, a fire on the left, a lovely stream on the right. One group walks towards the fire, into the fire, another towards the sweet flowing water. No one knows which are blessed and which not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the sweet stream. A head goes under on the water surface. That head pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion are cheated with this reversal. The trickery goes further. The voice of the fire tells the truth saying, I am not fire, I am fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. If you were a friend of God, Rumi says, fire is your water. Somehow each gives the appearance of the other. To these eyes you have now what looks like water burns. What looks like fire is a great relief to be inside. So our tools to effect this transformation traditionally are wisdom and compassion. They're developing <clears throat> clarity of mind and they're developing an open, radiant heart. Those are the traditional tools, sometimes said to be the two wings of the Dharma by which the whole teachings fly like a bird, wisdom and compassion. And so we practice mindfulness. We develop this ability to be present with what's here goes against that tendency to shoot the second arrow. Mindfulness is a training that goes against that tendency. The Buddha says of, of mindfulness, practitioners, this is the direct path for the purification of beings. 
for the disappearance of suffering, hordukkha, and discontent for the attainment of the true way, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So we cultivate mindfulness, which is this ability to be present with what's right in front of us. It's this very simple quality, which is really, uh, as we practice it here, a kind of refinement of a very ordinary quality, which is simply to be with what's there, to see it, to be present with it, to open to it. And we cultivate that ability to be with what's there, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And for most of us, as we were mentioning this morning, we have to first develop our attentional capacities. We have to develop our ability to sustain awareness with what's happening. For most of us, that is not a given. Most and many of us today may have felt our minds all over the place. How many felt that at least some of the time today? So we have to work with that. We might with, when we train in mindfulness, we train to stabilize attention more. We train to be able to see all the ways the mind moves about because it's very hard to work with these difficult states if we can't stay with them. And if we can't watch the nature of our mind and see what our habitual tendencies are, we need mindfulness to do that. We need that ability of mindfulness to be directly present with our experience without telling a bunch of stories, basically. Just to be with our breath, to be with the sounds in the room, to be with a flower, to be with a tree in this direct way, and to be able to see when an experience starts to trigger thoughts and narratives, assumptions and stories. That's a foundational capacity for our work. It's not that stories or narratives are wrong, but it's very, very important to know the difference between direct experience and telling stories about our experience or making generalizations or leaping to some uh, idea about ourselves or about another. And that capacity we learn with mindfulness. It's so crucial. We can be more with the direct experience. That's why every moment, even when it's not dramatic, we're just walking outside and staying with our step. Nothing dramatic happening, no distressing states, but we're training in mindfulness. We can be with the meal and just taste the taste, training in mindfulness. That's what we're doing here. That's in a way what we've done all day. And the first day is admittedly, whether we've practiced for 10 or 20 years, the first day is always difficult. So I think most of us have done retreats and know that, but it's important to say again, if you feel like your mind's gone all over the place and they've been challenging experiences or just uh, sleepiness or just uh, difficult thoughts, that's very ordinary. In fact, what we're invited to do is just to be present with those and to name them. The quality of mindfulness is, is to first learn to be able to stay with our experience. And then it's just to say, what's happening now? 
Let me be with it. That's it. We could, that's a, a universal teaching, really. What's happening right now? I'm sleepy. Let me be with it. What's sleepiness feel like? Let's see if I can get into it. What does sleepiness, or I'm, I'm feeling irritated. What does irritation feel like? Let me be with it. A teacher who often comes here named Achan Samedo. Achan is just a Thai word for teacher. He's an American named Achan Samedo. He has the phrase which uh, uh, has been quite influential at Spirit Rock. He, he is fond of saying, when you do mindfulness, just study. What is something like? And he has a phrase, it's like this. What is irritation like? Oh, it's like this. What is despair like? Oh, it's like this. What is joy like? Just to say what's happening now, let me be with it. Let me know that it's there. Let me explore it. Let me study it. Let me be present with it. That's what our practice is. That's really a primary tool. And in a way, it comes out of Buddhism, but it's so universal. It's so universal that it's entering into American and Western culture at this incredibly rapid pace right as we speak. You know, mindfulness has been taught, including by some of you here, to thousands of students in Oakland and San Francisco in the elementary school. You know, it's being taught really as a universal capacity to be present. It's something that comes from Buddhist tradition in a way, but it's quite universal. So we cultivate that quality of mindfulness. We stay, we learn to stay with the objects. We learn to stay with the breath. We learn to stay with our body sensations, pleasant, unpleasant. We learn to stay with them. We, get, we train ourselves, just let me see what's happening right now and let me be here, not to run away. The call of mindfulness is really to say, stay here. Stay with what's present. Here. Just stay here. Just come back. Come back to what's there in the moment. Over and over again we do that. And we also develop these, what we could call, awakened qualities that are not about being necessarily with distressing states. In a sense, mindfulness is an awake quality that helps us to be with the difficult states, but we also develop beautiful qualities like loving kindness or compassion or joy. We learn how to be present with those states. We, we invite them to be there. And here, we're, loving kindness is taking this quite important role of it's this training in opening what, to what I would like to call the radiant heart that we can uh, keep cultivating. And so just as we develop mindfulness, which when we apply it continually, leads to a kind of wisdom over time. It leads to a wisdom, oh, can be personal. This is the nature of my habits. This is how my habits work. Oh, this is my tendency when I get blamed for something. Oh, this is what I do when something difficult happens to me. can be quite personal and individual. We keep on being mindful and we notice these things. Mindfulness works with repetition. 
you may have gathered it's not something that happens in a day. We don't give graduate certificates at the end of one day's of meditation. Sorry. I like to say that mindfulness works with what I call the exhaustion method, meaning we do it over and over and over again, and when we've noticed something 3,000 times, we get it. I have to say that. It's true. You know, we're kind of slow, most of us. <laughs> we have to notice something 3,000 times. And then uh, the three, you know, the 2,999th time, we're just, mm-hmm. then the 3,000th time, ah, oh, this is what I'm doing. I don't have to do that anymore. Ah, oh, I'm free for a moment. You know, <laughs> you know, and that's how it works. It's repetition, and I don't know why it works on the 3,000th time and not on the 2,999th time, but it's like that. Something clicks, you know. Quantity turns into quality, we might say. So we can be with mindfulness and leading to wisdom, and we can also cultivate the heart. And and I, I find that anyone who has a commitment to working with difficult states and going into one's own suffering, I think really needs to have a strong heart practice. I think it's also really crucial to have a body practice. We're going to be talking about the embodied meaning of a lot of these uh, qualities as well. Personally, I think it's really valuable to have a mind practice, a heart practice, and a body practice. Body practice could be yoga or taking a lot of walks or qigong or some way that we really keep tuning into our body. But a heart practice is what I want to especially talk about tonight a little bit further, because we're really here focusing on loving kindness. And it really takes us, as we cultivate loving kindness, it takes us into our luminous hearts more and more. Not saying that that should have happened in two half-hour sessions today. (laughs) But over time, we access that hearts, which we all know from various experiences. We all know that good heart. And we keep on practicing, which means we incline ourselves to let that heart manifest more and more. To know our good hearts, to let that be stronger. And it's so crucial for having the resources for being with what's difficult. Because partly, a a lot of us tend to be knocked around by our suffering. And we may blame ourselves. We may be caught in self-judgment quite a lot. And we may, in a sense, not have so much access at times to our beautiful qualities, to our radiant heart, to our luminous minds. And so we need practices which take us there. Even for moments, we need retreats where we can experience that quality of peace. It's really, really crucial When I study people who've been in the world and had an impact, they all have ways of renewing themselves and touching their deeper nature. For someone like Martin Luther King, it may have been through prayer and through song to come back to discover what he called that balm in Gilead, like an old song, to really touch the part of himself that was radiant and luminous and wise and in some ways untouched by all the suffering. 
And we need ways to do that. Loving kindness is a beautiful way to do that. There are other practices that can do that as well, but how do we touch that? And now, as I was mentioning this morning, in introducing the loving kindness practice, the loving kindness practice and other practices that, as it were, open us up to our beautiful qualities and let us stabilize more in them, it functions partly to let us have that center of gravity as well when we're dealing with difficult things. But it also has this beautiful function of helping us to, when we have distressing states, we can go into something like loving kindness or joy. And it may be something like we go to music or we go to nature. We go to what activates these beautiful qualities. Loving kindness is a wonderful practice for that. You know, it's a practice that we can call upon when we have a distressing state that is too strong for our mindfulness at the moment. And we say, help, loving kindness, please come help me. And if we've developed it well, it will come. So we wake up in the middle of the night with self-recrimination. We can go right to loving kindness when it's strong enough and it shifts the energy. It doesn't do the work of mindfulness or wisdom, but it shifts the energy and often that's incredibly skillful. So I think I'll tell just one short story about this and then I'll, I'll move towards ending by making a kind of a bridge with what we'll be doing tomorrow. But I wanted to tell a story which I promised I would tell earlier. It's one of my um, loving kindness as antidote stories. And so, let's see, about, um, it would be uh, about a year and a half ago in the summer, I was doing a retreat uh, at uh, Tara Mandala in uh, Colorado. And I was camping. And the people who were giving me the, um, who were pointing out possible campsites, pointed out when I wanted to be a little bit remote. And they pointed out one and said, this is a really nice campsite. It's really a great place. It's kind of sheltered by the trees. And they said, oh, and there was a bear that came through here last week and really uh, ripped up someone's tent really badly. And, and, so we, and we found the bear and we've taken it away. And, <laughs> and I said, oh, it looks like a nice place. I'll go there. And it may not have been the wisest thing I've ever done because certainly when it got to be night and there was no one else camping within about a quarter of a mile. And I was camping there and of course it came to be night. I went in my, went in my tent and started to try to fall asleep and you kind of know what happens next, right? Well, they took the bear away, but maybe it told some of its friends about this wonderful place, <laughs> you know? And my mind started to dwell on the bear and what I would do when it would come and not wanting to be eaten or whatever, I don't know if the bears there eat people, but I didn't think it would be great to be in the tent when a bear came through and ripped up a tent like it had done a short time ago and probably enjoyed it. And so I was started, my mind started dwelling on the bear. And at a certain point, I realized that I was suffering. It's one of the things that I have found with doing mindfulness practice over the years 
um, and really attending to this issue of transforming suffering, when I'm suffering, usually pretty quickly a light goes on that says I'm suffering, which is huge, right? That is huge. And that's one of the fruits of our practice. A light goes on, I'm suffering. And then uh, to an outside observer, it would have been obvious, but for me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, know so you know how that is sometimes. We're thick in the middle of it, it's hard to know. So I said, I'm suffering, what should I do? And I said, loving kindness practice. And so I called upon loving kindness practice there. I was probably had been up for an hour thinking about the bear and it was getting late. And I just started doing loving kindness practice. Towards the bear, towards myself, towards all beings, (laughs) doing loving kindness and kept on doing it. And, you know, um, there was a certain amount of fear there because it, after about three hours of loving kindness <laughs> practice, <laughs> I really did three hours of loving kindness practice. It probably, you know, kind of was getting late. But after after three hours, something really shifted, you know. And I said, "Okay, I don't, I don't know. I don't even remember so well." what happened, but after three hours of loving-kindness practice, more or less, you know, more or less um, keeping the flow going, um, I didn't feel fear anymore. In fact, uh, in the traditional teachings, loving-kindness is a direct antidote to fear. It is that. It's explained that way in the teachings. It's not to make you more loving originally that the Buddha gave the teaching list as an antidote to fear. And so three hours, then I went to sleep and I slept really soundly, didn't wake up again, didn't worry about the bear, and I decided to stay there for the rest of the eight or nine days of retreat. And I didn't think about the bear for the rest of the retreat. And that was interesting, you know, that there was um, some way that the loving kindness shifted the energy, you know, and you can experience that. You know, and maybe I needed heavy-duty loving-kindness for the bear. But uh, other situations, we don't need so much. When I wake up in the middle of the night and get on my own case, I do 10 or 15 minutes, and it can shift pretty, pretty well. So it's this beautiful tool that we have to help us with distressing states. We have this understanding of the teachings like the two arrows, the difference between pain and suffering and the way that suffering gets repeated. We have mindfulness. We have loving kindness. And we have these wonderful practices that have been developed at the level of the individual especially. They've been developed for us to practice individually and they can be practiced in communities and we can practice them together as we're doing here. And what's interesting and where we'll be going in the next days is we can find the counterpart of that understanding that we could call the understanding of the four truths, the quality of mindfulness that lets us be present with something that's difficult, and the quality of loving kindness. We can find that as well in different forms that help us to deal with suffering, to work with suffering when it manifests at the level of a community or a group or an organization or a whole society. And part of what we've all been interested in innovating are ways to make that bridge. 
to what we'll be going right to in the morning tomorrow? What kind of forms help us to do the counterpart of the individual work? I think using exactly the same principles. And I want to end by <clears throat> remembering another perspective that really helps me a lot, which is something I learned from um, a Vietnamese friend named uh, Thich Minh Duc, who is the Dharma heir of Thich Nhat Hanh and uh, has been a teacher on the West Coast, uh, in the West Coast Vietnamese communities. And I've uh, spent a lot of time with him and learned from him a lot. He told me that in Vietnam, when there were difficulties, particularly in the 1940s on, many of the Buddhists there said, we have this wonderful teaching of wisdom and compassion. We need to modify it. We need to add a third dimension, which is that of courage in these difficult times. We need to, as it were, I like to think of it as the bird that has the two wings of wisdom and compassion has the body of courage. I really think of it also in that embodied sense. And they said, we have to add that third dimension. And you can, we know that all of what we've been talking about tonight does take deep courage. It's also a quality we can cultivate. This is not easy. You did not come to the bliss retreat even though you may experience bliss, it's hard. We need that courage. We need the wisdom, the compassion, and the courage. I love that innovation. It's, it's stayed with me so strongly. Maybe I'll end with another one of my favorite um, sayings, which comes from the poet Yeats. And I'll, I'll leave us with this to close. He said, it takes more courage to examine the dark corners of your own soul. And we might add the dark corners of the society. It takes more courage to examine the dark, dark corners of your own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on a battlefield. It takes more courage to examine the dark corners of your own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on a battlefield. And so I think we cultivate all of these qualities, the wisdom, the heart, the compassion, and the courage as well. And these are the wonderful resources that we that we cultivate, that we bring forth as we as we work with our own challenges <coughs> and the larger challenges of our world. Let's just sit for a minute and let this settle just a bit.
So thank you for your kind attention and thank you for your practice today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.